if then the absolute is the origin and end of the world, both the grammarian and the, both the grammarian and the poet are sadhakas, that is, men who practice words as means for liberation. Bhartrahari, our great poet, therefore, not only wrote some of the most exquisite verses ever written, but also wrote a textbook on words and showed a way of liberation through the world. Kumaraswamy has said, is that which makes you withdraw from the world by not abandoning the world, but enjoying the world by withdrawal. Because enjoyment itself is that which we've come to at the end of it. Except I enjoy the world for myself, and this enjoyment is poetry. If you have the intellectual maturity, if you have the intellectual maturity and artistic sensibility to enjoy it, and then we both enjoy the same thing, the reader and the poet, except that there is never any two. There is always a not two in every experience. For to say two, to say one, from the Indian point of view, is a blasphemy. Because one is already defining the not two as something definite. To define the non-indefinable is a blasphemy. The word, therefore, here at this level is naturally magical. The Irish poet here talked of, of the magic of Irish words. And here is this, this is one of the connections between Ireland and India is this sense of magic which they have and which we possess. And that's where the relation between the two has been somewhat close. The word, therefore, at this level is naturally magical. And since the world, world is nothing but what you see, hear, touch, taste, and smell, you would know the sound vibrations of the world because you are the sound vibrations yourself. If you are it, if you are sound vibration yourself, then you know what a table is, what a chair is, what water is, what wind, sun, or earth are. To name it, to name any object, you have to become it yourself. And when you name it then, what then could it be but its real name? Because when you become itself, its name is real. Because nothing is not an object but yourself. And you can name yourself always better than you can name anything else. The real name, therefore, and this is a very important point in Indian poetics, the real name of anything, therefore, is its vibration in pure silence. Any object vibrating in pure silence is its name for everyone and for all persons. The perfect word then is the vibration of the object by itself, in itself, and about itself, where no one hears, sees, smells, or touches. And therefore, the, then therefore, the perfect word, rightly pronounced, would then have the power, at a slightly lower level, to create an object if you so wish it. No bond. No word that is not a natural name of any object or thought experience, no, no name that is not a natural name could ever be precise. This again we come back to what Malarm was trying to reach. The perfect word in poetry was what he was trying to say. He had a, I don't know how many of you remember the extraordinary letter that Malarm wrote to Kezalis on his great experience when he said, the profound spiritual experience, when he said, the word that Stefan ever existed 
was una- he was unable to think that Stefan ever existed. That death was something foolish. He could not understand death. Eternity was the most natural thing for him. And then from there, after that experience, he went and started all his theories of the world. So he had a profound experience. Now, one other thing that I might tell you was Kazalis, to whom he wrote this letter, himself was a great specialist in Buddhism. And Kazalis wrote, Kazalis had a pseudonym. He was called Jean Lahore, or Henri Lahore. And, and uh, Henri Lahore called himself Lahore because Lahore was India and wrote a book on Indian literature in 1880 or something. So Mallarmé knew something of Indian thought, though he always says in his letters that his negation is not Buddhist. Therefore, you know enough about it to say it is not Buddhist. So poetry then is that magical link of precise name, names only to be understood when you reach the possibility of silence in you wherein the world goes back into its silence, as it were, and you enjoy, if, enjoy it only in Brahman. So only in Brahman is enjoyment possible between the poet and the reader. So the reader has to write, rise to the level of the poet. And that's why what Valery has said. When somebody asked him why is poet, his poetry so difficult, Valery simply said, let them rise to the level of understanding, then it will be all right. So I think that's why. I don't see any reason why things shouldn't be difficult. <laughs> why not? Let them those few who can understand it, let them enjoy it in their pure silence. And then, of course, what does one enjoy? One enjoy. One enjoys oneself, always. So, so just so joy is nothing but a joy of oneself. And so, one can use an expression which is slightly. And English, but let me say it, joy, joys itself, one can say. And Brahman, of course, is nothing but joy. So what is it that happens when we enjoy poetry is we are in Brahman, and we're enjoying Brahman, and there's nobody, not even the poet. There's nobody, not, not even I. And that's really poetry. Such is the origin and aim of Sanskrit poetry. This is the origin and aim of the whole of Sanskrit poetry, from the Vedas downwards. Our first Vedic texts tell us from the very beginning that our poets were sages. It's very beautiful that in the Indian tradition, all of our sages were poets. And when we say sage, we mean, or seer, we mean Kavi. Kavi is both a poet and a seer. And it is these Vedic poets that laid the foundation of Indian civilization. Hence, wisdom and poetry are one. And therefore, the word became what we call mantra in Sanskrit. Mantra means the magical, incantative expression. And there's a very famous saying in, uh, in, 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 in one of our uh, sages who said, uh, he said, all word expressed by a sage is the precise word. Because he having no ego can only say the precise word. And therefore, the poet also, at his right, if he's rightly immersed in Brahman, we'll also say the precise word. A very ambition tradition indeed, as you can see. And one could boldly say the Sanskrit poet kept this tradition till at least the 17th century, from two or three or 4,000 BC, and has enriched the world with some of the most astonishing combinations of sound and meaning strung together that man has ever discovered. Kalidasa, our most important poet, 
coming almost 2,000 years or more after the Vedic seers, commences one of the most famous of his poems with this verse. Vākyartaf vyavasampruktu vyākartaf pratipattaye jagataf pitarau vande parvati parameshwarau. Vākartaf vyavasampruktu vākartaf pratipattaye jagataf pitarau vande parvati parameshwarau. It means just as word and meaning are one, so is Shiva, so are Shiva and Parvati. Shiva being the man as the absolute and Parvati being the human being as human being and therefore the world. So just as the world and the absolute are only two aspects of the same experience. Similarly, between what Shiva and Parvati, what do they do? They play. So the world is nothing but play of Parvati going towards Shiva and Shiva encourages him Help, help, help encourages her, helps her. And this mutual play between Shiva and Parvati is the game of poetry. And very characteristically, uh, Kalidasa begins a whole poem with this, with, this, with this verse. Just as Shiva and Parvati are one, so is sound and meaning one. Now let me, after having told you the philosophical background of this, let me try and very briefly give you a few verses uh, that I have tried not to translate but to give their meanings literally and show you how difficult therefore it is to do any translation. The word made concrete then is the object. Therefore, even to this day, when we go to market to buy, an object, to buy some things, we always call it, we say, how many padarthas have I to buy? Padartha literally means the meaning of the word. The objects, say a chair, a table, uh, kitchen utensils, uh, all the uh, food that you have to buy, all are called padarthas, that is to say, meaning of the word. So artha, or meaning, is also the object. So Arthashastra, which is a book of political science, means the science of objects, or political science. So padartha, means, as I said, the meaning of the word. That is to say, any object, the sound, therefore, made, made the sound made object, therefore, is the word. But as there are so many objects, and of such complex nat natures, what does one do? For this, the Vedic poets, the seers, had already shown how the elements had primary sounds. Ra for fire, for example. If you say ra, it is supposed to be the primary sound of fire, which you get in silence. There's a very good essay on this by the Irish poet A.E., who wrote magnificent, he came to it all by his own. He wrote an essay called The Language of the Gods, in which he sat in meditation and tried to find out what would the gods have written in, what language they have written in. And, the, and that language, he said, would have this primary sound. And he said he came to the same word as fire was, in, uh, was ra, as the sound of fire was ra, and its color was red. Its form, if I remember, was triangle. So obviously there is some sort of esoteric wisdom there, I do not know. For this, the Vedic poets 
had discovered what are called primary sounds. Primary sounds are called bijaksharas in Sanskrit, which means that every one of these elements have their own particular vibration. That is, when you take the world as a possible reality, because for the Indian, the world is never a reality, but a possible reality. When you take the world as a possible reality, and each sound has its own color and geometrical form, in fact, in our music, we have this specifically defined. Each musical note or raga or combinations of notes has its own color, shape, field or forests, and of birds. So that when you have to represent any musical note in to yourself, you do it as a painting with the specific birds, colors, shapes, mountains, forests, and trees and animals. So this, this shows a certain mo mode, a musical mode, in which which it takes you when you by by which you go back to Brahman once again. It's always a way of going back to Brahman. The comp Therefore, every root sound or bijakshara to, to make an object, a, co a complete object, which has many aspects to itself, you take many bijaksharas and make a com compound of those bijaksharas and make one solid sound composition. The sound composition of various primary sounds is the name of that object. And this, with this, you make a, a phrase. That phrase, with associative values becomes a sentence. And, and, this, and since in Sanskrit you can add any word to any word and make as long a sentence as you want, you can make, actually, you can make a whole book of one single sentence. In fact, in Bana in the eighth century has some sentences which are about two, half, two and a half or three pages long, but made of one single word. That is, they, they go one word, gets into the other, like in German, and combines itself, and therefore you can go on making two and a half pages long, and in, uh, poets have attempted this, uh, the tricks that they tried, and which, because it is terribly effective. And this will again come back to the famous Le Livre of Malarme, they wanted to write, but every word is perfect, in its place, and therefore it, it, has never to, it has never to be shaken. And Malarme hoped that he could one day be the poet who could live this book. Now, f at another level, at another level, you have got other things at a low, slight lower level. You can divide this poet's experience into rasa, dhvani, and spota. Rasa, as I told you, is enjoyment. Dhvani is suggestion. There's a whole school of dhvani, which means every word and every poem must have innumerable associative values. For the same poem can be read at one level meaning this, at another level meaning this, at another level meaning something. Sometimes it can be read at eight different levels, each level meaning the same thing, because each Sanskrit word has different meanings, and therefore this, this, is, this, is, this is the beauty of it and the danger of it. By the way, I may tell you without any sense of uh, exaggeration that the Sanskrit dictionary, which is going to be soon published, is going to be the biggest dictionary in the world because it's the richest language in the world. That's just simply. <laughs> and uh, there are sometimes 
as many as 200 to 300 synonyms possible for just a thing like the mountain, the river, or a tree. These combinations are by associative values. So that it is, uh, therefore, jingling rhyme is so easy in Sanskrit. In fact, I used to play that myself very often, invent verses as I went along, because almost any word said in a certain manner seemed very poetical. But it is not, of course, it doesn't make poetry, it just makes it for, for fun, you know. So, so, so the poetry, a complex organization of sounds, sounds that could create objects as it were, works up to an associative structure of images and vocables from level to level, which when rightly pronounced and rightly heard, that is from silence to silence, leads to the ultimate joy, which is the absolute itself. Whether it does not matter whether the mood is one of hate or love, tenderness or heroism, because there are at least eight rasas or eight primary modes, and sometimes, sometimes one says there are nine. Total hatred can lead to the aban abandon abandonment of the world as such, total love to the surrender of the ego, and so on. Every emotion, it does not matter what emotion, can lead, lead you to the absolute. For it is, in Brahm, it is to Brahman, or to the absolute, every gesture and sound is directed. Hence, all poetry is worship made to the absolute. Not, they need not be hymns, but any poetry is worship made, because they're all directed towards the disappearance of your ego and your mer merger into the world, into Brahman and not into the world. Having come so far, you'll realize that it is really impossible to translate Sanskrit poetry. And my attempts at trying to translate them have been so poor because of the reasons that I, the examples that I'm going to give you. Have I time? Sure. I'm just taking a few simple examples. There is this wonderful poem on the Ganges. Devi Sureshwari Bhagavati Gange Tribhuvanatarani Taralatarange Shankara Mauli Vihar Nibimale Mamamatanastang Tava Padakamale. This is how the verse lies. Devi Sureshwari Bhagavati Gange. So I'm going to give you just the meaning of the first line, and since the Ganges is something everybody knows, you'll understand how this is described in, by one of our very great poets. Devi means she who is lit, therefore a goddess. Sureshwari comes from the word sura, means meaning a higher being. Ishwari implies the head, but a woman chief as it were. Bhagavati is she who is ever generous and therefore is blessedness as such. The verse, this verse literally translated would read thus. You the chieftain or queen of all the superior beings or gods is the blessedness itself, the Ganges. You the chieftain or queen of all the superior beings or gods and is blessedness itself, she, the Ganges. Then the next line, Tribhuvana Tarani Tarala Tarangi. Tribhuvana means the three gardens or three universes, three 
fields or three gardens, three universes. Tarani means flowing. Tarani. But also means sun ray, a ray of light, a raft, a boat, and just the, the movement of floating. Taralata. But it's so close to Tarangita. Tarangita is another word which is very close to this word. Any poet knows this. So Tarangita, which means tossing with the waves. So Taralata is Tarangata, near Tarangata. And so there's at once a ray of light, a raft, a boat, a float, and the movement of waves. Overflowing, tremulous, for Taranga also means the waves. Or leap, or of clothes. She is bell clad like in, as in gold. So she is at once movement and clothed, and she has got color of like a, like a paint or a dye. Because Taranga also means color, dye, hue. It also means, and, and also, and Ranga, above all, Taralita Range. Ranga means the field, the stage. It means the stage. Ranga, uh, the, when you go on to the theater, on the stage you call, you call it Ranga. So, and also Ranganayaki means she who dances. So Ranga means the field, the dance, the, the arena. So she who flows into this arena, which you can see could have no real translation for each word, has several meanings at any single word level, and at each level it is consistent. So there are, there, there are verses in Sanskrit which can be read in different, different ways and for different situations. I'm sure that there are four or five different meanings, translations possible of this, but I, but why I can give you only one. That is, I give you the horizontal one, not the vertical one. So it could be said this way, O goddess or lit one, queen of superior godly hosts, blessedness as flow, O Ganges, floating, shining, O oh, you flowing to the three universes and making the space, the arena, to dance or flow on. This is one line. Uh, Devi Sureshwari Bhagavati Gange Devi Sureshwari Bhagavati Gange Tribhuvana Tarani Tarani So, then let me take another verse, which is a very famous verse of this great poet and sage called Shankara. He says, Kasik Shetram Shariram Trivuna Jananim Vyapini Jnana Ganga. It's a beautiful verse. I get, I get my hair standing on end when I read it. Uh, uh, this one, of the, one of the aspects of poetry is that your hair stands on end. Kasik Shetram Shariram Trivuna Jananim Vyapini Jnana Ganga. Kasik Shetram. Kashi means Banaras. But the word Kashi comes from Kash, which means to shine, to be. And because being itself, impersonally, is brilliant, it's also beautiful. Therefore, Kashi means the brilliant, the beautiful. Uh, I, there's are some Latin verses in medieval verses written on Rome, which have something of the same quality of uh, on Rome, you know, the, the, the noble Rome. The, and so this is, but here in Kakashi here means the beautiful. It also means to appear, appear, certainly. It also means to banish, because everybody who was going to die was going to come to Benares. So he had to banish himself from where he was. So it also means to banish. To open, it opens itself to the absolute. 
It brings out from you what is inside, and it also brings you light. So Kashi, Kash means all these words together. Bananas then is, the, is, is when one is brought out, that is to say, you're shown your true nature, which is Shiva. And Banaras is the city of Shiva, the absolute, and the Lord of Banaras, who is himself Shiva. Therefore, Kashi is where you are shown your true nature. And that is the very word, Kashi implies that. Kshetra means field, ground or soil, place, abode, or repository. These are dictionary meanings I'm giving to you. Ground or soil, place, abode, or repository. In a famous poem, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the word kshetram is used often to mean your ego, this, the, here where you are. Kshetra, it just is used as kshetram. Now, it also means a sacred spot, a pilgrimage, a sports ground, and therefore where Shiva dances. The body as a soul, as a field, this is a dictionary meaning of, of this. Kshetra means the body as a field where the soul works. But the mind works, the house works, it's a triangle, it's also a diagram, and so on. I can give you many other meanings like And what is shariram? Shariram is a body. When I say my body, I say my shariram. The body is a shariram, of made up what? Of constituent elements. Therefore, a body is that which is made up of elements, but is not the soul. There's a very famous thing that in Buddhism, you've got what are called 81 elements of which the body is made of, those are just elements, there's nothing, there's no soul there. Similarly, even in, in Vedic tradition, the body is just nothing but a constituent of elements, but the Atman is, of course, beyond it all. Tribhuvana, the same as before, the three universes, the th these three gardens or fields. Jananim, now Jananim is a word which, is, which brings tears to most of us because it means the mother. She who gave birth to you, the mother, or she who gives light to you. She who brings you to the Guru is the mother. And so Jananim has this extraordinary extended meaning. She who brings you to your real light. The great mother. Vyapini means pervading, filling, occupying, coextensive, invariably concomitant. It's also a name for Vishnu who spreads out. And you can see the Ganges, when it is in flood, it's really spread, she spreads out, you know, she spreads out and destroys lots of houses and trees and, and men also, very often. Jnana means supreme knowledge, knowledge for liberation. And therefore, and Ganga, of course, means the Ganges. So this verse, horizontally translated, would mean, in the shining, in the shining field of the body flows the three universe pervading Ganges as knowledge. In this shining field of the body flows the three universe pervading Ganges. She flows as knowledge. Vyapini, Jnana Ganga. Jnana Ganga means the Ganges as knowledge. You can also say knowledge as Ganges, it doesn't matter, but sadly. The last example I'll give to you is of the very famous poet Bhartrahari, whom I have already quoted as a grammarian was a great prince, a grammarian, a sensualist who became an ascetic and ultimately a sage. He has outshone brilliance. He has, he has only been outshone brilliance by Kalidasa. 
Bhartanari's very famous poem has this beginning. Matar Madini. Matar means mother. Madini means the earth, land, soil, place. Tata means father, someone worthy of respect, but also said in affection as papa, but never familiar. Maruta means air, relating to Maruts, the spiritual air, breath, vital air. Sakha means friend, copain, companion, brother, brother in pain, one to whom one could fall back upon for enlightenment. Jyoti means fire or light, the light of Brahman, the faculty of seeing. Sabando means duly bound together, or well bound, or fraternally united. A father, a husband, and also charged with fragrance. Jala means dull, cold, frigid, water, of libation. And the first line, therefore, could read as follows. O Mother Earth and Father Air, O Friend Fire and Great Kinsman Water. I'll get you the text if I could. I must apologize to you. I prepared this speech yesterday and today, and so I didn't have all the also. Matar medini tata maruta sakha jyotis sabando jala. Matar medini tata maruta sakha jyotis sabando jala. This, this verse in, in completion would read as follows. I haven't got the whole Sanskrit text. I'm sorry, I can't read you the whole text. This is it. But, uh, but, uh, but this verse, this single line that I've read you, Matar medini. Tata Maruta Sakajotis Sabandojala is what I have translated to you so far. The poem ends this way. O Mother Earth and Father Air, O Friend Fire, Great Kinsman Water, O Brother Ether, to you all in final parting I make obeisance. Through your long association have the right deeds been performed. Through you I have won pure shining wisdom unweaving the sweet delusions of the mind. Now I merge into Supreme Brahman. This verse is, was written by him to show that he has used words and objects only as worship to the Absolute. And I think it is right that I should finish with Bhatrahare because he was the purest poet that we have had, the wisest, and one whose words have the feeling of concreteness. Therefore, I shall say only that, and to conclude, that I hope I have spoken from a real silence, and I hope you have been able to hear in real silence. <laughs>